recording. Yeah, you were just <laughs> you were just saying um, sort of how even expressing love to another person sort of presupposes um, that the language has meaning, and then um, this marriage proposal isn't just about um, you know having faith that the feelings will continue, but but um, sort of this pledge to faithfulness. So. Um, because the objective world doesn't always correspond to our propositions. History is an episode of revisions. Uh, Thomas Kuhn shows us that science is a history of conceptual revisions of paradigms, the structure of scientific revolution. So we were reminded time and again that our language doesn't always comport with reality. But if our very internal subjectivity doesn't comport with language, we're doomed. But because it does comport with language, we can appropriately revise our standing with reality. We can make plans for the future. We can make professions of faith. We can try experiments out. We can propose hypotheses. All of that presupposes I would say, a correspondence in some sense between our language and our internal makeup, desires, thoughts, etc., passions. And the very latency of that inner world of desires and passions and thoughts, not having always an immediate hookup to things as they are as such out there, creates the very drama of what will unfold and who people really are. This is the whole thing in sickness and in fear and trembling with the three-day trial of Abraham. Abraham knew inside that this was going to be all right because he trusted God. But externally, it looked like he was going to commit murder. It looked like he was going to commit just a pagan sacrifice of his son. Reality historical reality wasn't matching up with what he knew inside. And if he were to utter his sentence, it wouldn't hook up yet with reality. And yet he persisted because there really was a presupposition that had to be tested if he really believed what he professed to believe. Sometimes even not given external evidence for a period of time. Go ahead. Let me, let me connect that back to your <clears throat> Rorty comment because I think Rorty is actually kind of an interesting input him because he's a he's complicated and i kind of like a lot of the things that he says but he's he's a kind of quintessential relativist uh you know and he's he, i think he comes we can bring it back to the text with with this line and i'll try to tie this back in but there's a this is this is like the fourth paragraph or something um such a relation which relates to itself a self must either be established itself or been established by something else. Mm. So there's so he takes this structure that we talked about before and then he bumps it into this binary, which is that we are just in the world of the world, or we have this bigger relation to something that something else. And I think he ultimately turns the something else into 
God or something else is the reference to God. And in the end, the grounding for Kierkegaard in this, and I think there's something to discuss here, whether this is the right way to view God or whatever. But in, in this text, I think ultimately the grounding becomes the individual uh, presenting themselves directly to God as an individual. And, and that then is a stopping point. There's nowhere else to go from, you know, except for there. And then you move on in faith. So that is, that, that's how I read the Abraham uh, story as well. It's just like, you know, there's no place else, you know, Abraham's walking to the mountain and he either is alone and he's going to be one of those things you talked about. He's either going to kill Isaac and become a murderer, or he's going to fail to kill Isaac and then be unfaithful to God, or he's going to, you know, whatever. But the only thing that can possibly rescue that is him walking and being, if you will, face to face to God. And, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah. yeah. Beautifully put. It, it speaks to the category of infinite passion that Kierkegaard makes uh, much hay out of. In fact, somewhere in Fear and Trembling, I think it's near the end of Problema One, um, if there's such a thing as a teleological suspension of the ethical, um, is this notion that faith is a passion. It's more- well, I wanna read, now I gotta read this quote from Fear and Trembling, which I think plays right into uh, Sickness unto, unto Death. And it's one of these quotes that just sticks with me forever, whether or not it connects to any bigger idea or not, I don't know. But here it is. Um, if there were no eternal consciousness in a man, if at the bottom of everything, there were only a wild firmament, a power that, twist, that, that twisting in dark passions produced everything great or inconsequential. If an unfathomable, insatiable emptiness lay hid between, excuse me, lay hid beneath everything, what would life be but despair? And then he says, but, and, that, and therefore it isn't. And therefore, right. life isn't like that. Yeah. 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 And I, then I think it's despair, but not despair. Despair is required. That, that's one of the things that sickness unto death, I think, says you can't get there but through despair. I don't, we could, that's, some, that's a proposal that we could debate, I think, maybe. But I think the, one of the proposals of sickness unto death is what you said there, Joshua, which is d despair is. Um, prerequisite or whatever. Uh, here's a question. Um, so you just said, like, um, sort of presented this. Um, so here on the first page, he has sort of this um, two types of despair. You know, one if if the self constitutes itself, and the other is like if the self is constituted by something else. Um, uh, where was I going with this? And now you just said, had this quote of, you know, if there's nothing internal within a man, what is there but despair? But how does that comport to what he says on page, on the second page under B, possibility and actuality of despair? Where he actually makes the argument that despair um, at, is potentially an advantage because it's sort of what separates uh, man from the beasts, essentially. It's our ability to have despair, which, which is sort of the, um, 
you know, to read it back to your quote, which is this, this infinite part of man, this, this spirit. Yeah, this is where my, my ideas are kind of half-baked or three-quarters baked. <laughs> you can't quite tie all these things together, and you're, you're pointing out a version of that. I, you're right. I, I'm not quite sure I t how I tie that back. Anyone else? So what, what is your question? Oh, it's just the – okay, so Robert – no, sorry. Jim just read this quote where he says, um, you know, sorry. if there's no um, infinite – infinite thing and no no infinite consciousness in man or something like that um there's nothing Etern but despair. eternal consciousness eternal consciousness yes um there's nothing but despair but here on the second page he says um it's actually despair which sort of separates us from the beasts because it's this uh it, it sort of presupposes this this eternal element within humans this which would be interesting to dive into as well. I don't, I don't know if he would say that um, being able to despair means that you already have to have an internal consciousness. I think maybe you have to have consciousness before you can despair. And despair in that sense because it comes with Consciousness uh, is a prerequisite for faith. Does that make sense? I'm pretty sure he tries to make this argument in Fear and Trembling. So you're distinguishing um, sort of consciousness from, from, from something else? or Yeah, I thought the eternal consciousness thing was basically like, uh, sort of the Christian idea of the soul. I thought he was kind of jumping to the soul, but maybe I was wrong. Maybe that was just an assumption I shouldn't have made. Well, Kierkegaard in this, from what I've read in Six Unto Death, has um, in the first paragraphs he, he says, um, "Man is spirit," and then he says, "The spirit is the self." But then he also brings in the soul. So you have the spirit, the self, and the yeah. soul. And how, how are those three related in Kierkegaard's mind? I actually don't know. Are they the same thing? Um, don't forget the eternal consciousness. Oh, I, well, that's not in the same book, I don't think. Yeah, but I thought we were talking about in his mind. I didn't know if it was oh. in the same book or not. <laughs> no, that's from uh, Fear and Trembling. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think so yeah, these I are think, all different yeah. uh, pseudonyms. Um, just two. Are they actually the same pseudonym? No, no, no. So I want to say something in regards to. Uh, it seems to me that Kierkegaard's theory that he's assuming in his argument for despair, at least in section B, is that spirit properly is to be understood in the ethical category. What the spirit does is always a moral question because it finds itself in an environment, it finds itself confronted with choices that it cannot optimize or maximize all of them. And so as it decides, it cuts itself off from other possibilities. So the question becomes, 
how do I make this process of pruning, of character development, we might say, not inherently despair? Is there a way to get beyond despair as we lose possibility? Because what is growth, development, and time but the loss of possibilities? Or at least the not actualizing thereof. So in that second paragraph, he talks about possibility and actuality. And I think he has in his mind, either this was coming down to him from Luther, when Luther talked about the freedom of the will, he distinguished will in accordance with our being able to choose, and then a uh, unfree will that didn't even have the ability to choose. Go even further back, Thomas Aquinas has a distinction between potency and actuality. And I actually think that's what Kierkegaard's theory is here. He thinks in order to cure despair, you can't cure it like someone who's lame, blind, etc. You have to go straight to the potential that you have as spirit to be in despair. That's what has to be cured, not the symptoms. So he says, um, not being in despair must mean the annihilated possibility of the ability to be in it. For it is to be true, for it to be true that someone is not in despair, he must be annihilating that possibility every instant. Hmm. So it's moral, it's not handed over at salvation. The Christian would say it is the fruits afterward. That's yeah, how I, I, I think that's right. Here, here, here's the formula. Here's here's the formula that Kierkegaard himself puts out. I don't I don't know how this touches directly on what you said, but at the end of the first part, I think it's. I'm sure it's the end of the of the a section. Um. This then is the formula which describes the state of the self when despair is completely eradicated. In relating to itself and in wanting to be itself, the self is grounded transparently in the power that established it. I think it's, it's, that's a kind of a definition of authenticity for, for, uh, for Kierkegaard, which is this, and that's why the introduction of the power that established it that's where the power that established it comes in. Um, and I don't know if that touches on exactly what you were saying there, but I think he's, I think he's saying something like we have to get to a place. Faith really is to be what we are. And that's kind of a tautological statement. But when you, when you started with this body mind division and we're we emerge in this worry or dilemma or somehow despair related to, uh, oh my God, I'm whatever, I'm a body or whatever. I'm just not, I'm alienated from that. The journey is back to that in a way. I wouldn't quite, acceptance is a defeatist-like word, but it's it's to own oneself. It's to own that as the vehicle through which one has faith and therefore, and that's pinned on this power that established it so that you can then, be that, be that, process. be that self, be that process. Okay. With now interpreting the same, or having the same thing you started with, but now interpreting it with faith 
and now owning it and uh, let's say relishing in it or whatever, or being in a right relation to that. Uh, yeah. See, I was, I, think, I was, can I just, uh, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. I was wondering, um, when he said the, this authenticity bit is relating itself and wanting to be itself. Um, it's sort of the self, um, it, it sort of seemed you're presupposing that there's sort of this hidden inner self that I want to get in touch with and actualize. And um, that sort of seems to, to contradict the, this existentialist yeah. thing of existence precedes essence, where you're sort of becoming something that you aren't actually now. Um, of course, like you said earlier, there is still this, this givenness, but you, you're sort of working with the material you have and then coming to something new in the future. Um, it has to somehow be both. That's the tension between the, let's say, the infinite and the finite. Or, um, I see a lot of synonymity between that formula and then two paragraphs later, his possibility-actuality distinction. I think the actuality-possibility distinction is a distillation of the formula you cited, where when the power that posited it is transparently revealed through the subject, act collapses onto potency and potency is only act. It's kind of like a rewriting, a revising of Thomas Aquinas's actus purus, which he thought God was, like God was pure act. And so he equated essence with existence. I don't agree with that at all. But subjectively, if we are image bearers of God, it seems appropriate to say that we would want our actions to collapse into our potency. We would want to be a faithful rendering of the artist's hands, of ultimate reality's purpose, fate for our lives. And so you will know the tree by its fruits is consonant with this idea of the power that posited it being transparent through it. But that is a marriage of deed and word. Word being where all the theories are laden and professions are made and intentions are worked out and the deed where they are literally actually worked out. When those are together, we not only feel it, we know it. And then Kierkegaard's claim, we are it. And those three things just have to be the solution to despair. There's no room for despair in that integration because there's no potential for it. There's no break, no tension. And that's what I meant in my email by, I think Kierkegaard's remedial project is to take away dialectics from philosophy by showing us where dialectics end and how they bring us back to that integrated picture. Yeah. I want to say two things about that. I think one of them is I wanted to say before was that um, Kirkwood says somewhere that that language is immediacy, so it's a kind of relating, I think. And um, in fear and trembling, this is kind of a jump, but in fear and trembling, um, there's a little, there's a couple paragraphs where he contrasts what he's trying to talk about, um, like true faith with the naive faith of a child. That's a sort of 
pre-linguistic, I guess, faith where maybe not pre-linguistic entirely, but the child has a, a kind of faith. It looks like faith because they, like you're saying, Matt, in a sense, they're, they're pure act. They don't do a lot of um, struggling. Struggling. They don't. They don't really do a lot of thinking in in the way we think about thinking. They don't have analysis paralysis or anything like that. You have faith um, to survive. Yeah, but it's not the faith that Kierkegaard is trying to get at. And I think the I think what we should be trying to do, if Kierkegaard is right, is to get get simple after after getting complicated if that makes sense that's oversimplifying it but once we grow and once we mature we we realize that that life is infinitely complicated we grapple with it and we realize we despair because we realize we can't win i guess you could combinatorial say. explosion to go with yes <laughs> yeah um, yeah Verbeke's and, and then we have to somehow get back to that naive faith, in a sense, but without the na- naivete, hopefully, and, and learn to be simple again, right? And that's not like a hiding your head in the sand kind of faith. That's it's a it's a trust, it's a trusting God. And I think that that kind of faith is only possible if you have a particular kind of God. And I'm pretty sure that obviously uh, Kierkegaard was very aware that he was. His kind of God was a very Christian God. Well, yeah, the, I mean, this makes me think of the relationship between the believer and the church, where uh, a lot of us um, probably like don't exactly fit into our church community entirely because, um, you know, you go to the sermons and, you know, the, the pastor doesn't sound like he's read a whole lot of Kierkegaard and he doesn't sound too philosophical and just feel out of place. But I think what you sort of have to do maybe in a guardian sense is sort of, um, you know, put, put all of your intellectualizing aside and then sort of submit yourself to the community. Um, and I guess I would also add it, not in the naive way where you're just, okay, I'm going to go along with everything that's being said here. It's, it's this individual before God. Yeah. Maybe this, maybe this is Kierkegaard ecclesiology but you know it's sort of the individual before god and then relating to his fellow man um which yeah if there's something problematic with kierkegaard for me is this excessively inward um emphasis and you're just you're just kind of going ahead and ignoring that (laughs) and saying we can do that in communion and i actually agree with you on that I think I've, I have that feeling of kind of being a stranger in a strange land to some degree in my own church community, but I, but, but community is, is a very high priority and, you know, uh, being with means to some degree having faith, despite that sense of being a strange, strange land. And I totally follow you on that. I'm not sure Kierkegaard could get along with his fellow parishioners, however. (laughs) Well, I, I think, um, (laughs) For me, like one way I've personally applied this Kierkegaardian venture is just um, trying to put my intellectual pride aside and relate to people who I think aren't as uh, intellectual as I am and just sort of um, 
got the, the, this this faith of meeting another person, this faith that's needed to um, connect soul to soul uh, type of thing. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot here that I'm not saying, but I, I think... Yeah. I totally agree with you. Humility is... Yeah. Yes, humility. I think that's humility what I'm trying to get at is... Yeah. Um, the relationship between faith and humility here um, is what is essential. Um, and it, yeah, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you with, with relationship to this to this childlike faith, I think what that requires the move that the sleep of faith requires is ultimately humility. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a definition of faith. Faith faith is going to church when. The last time you went, your pastor preached on the difference between sprinkling and dunking. <laughs> yeah. I, I have better examples, but I won't throw them out there. I want to throw out a quick book recommendation. Yeah. I and Thou, Julian, You Might Enjoy by Martin Buber. I'm not saying everything in it is, say, orthodox, but it does grapple with the issue of, given the complexity now I'm at the simple, and it's an achieved simplicity. It's not a naive one. How do I go about integrating the social with the inward achievement? How do I theologically approach experience with the inward achievement? And it's short. might be a good one to, to wrestle through. I and thou. Yeah. On my list. Where do we go next here? What's the um, I don't really go to next this long paragraph? Um, I want to throw something quick out there. I'm really uh, stimulated by this. Um, I, I think we could say it's the locus classicus of where Kierkegaard comes short in his philosophy. He gives you a methodology. He gives you language. He gives you the art of inward achievement. After you do your Kierkegaardian rounds, you feel like you have achieved what you are and what you can feel and say and know. Now, how do you take that and go the next level up in theology and become, or shall I say, assume in your propositions and belief, the theory that Jesus prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane, namely, O Lord, that they would be one. Kierkegaard gives the subjectivity oneness, but how do we make the plural multiform otherness a a unicity? That is a great question, and it's one that cannot be sidelined in our lifetimes. We are called to it as Christians. So maybe we can entertain this together and think through how we might bring Kierkegaard's inward achievement to the outward, to the other, to our communion with believers, with Christians. It is our call. I I think ideally, I think he, he sort of knew that problem. Uh, how would I say this? He, I think he sort of under, understood that problem because ideally the act 
the, the acting Christian isn't thinking about the fact that he's acting. Like the, the proverb, uh, the right hand, let not the right hand know what the left hand is doing or whatever it is. Um, because in fear and trembling, although that's, that's a, that is written from an outside perspective. It's written, in my opinion, it's written by a pseudonym who is supposed to be a religious poet, meaning someone who knows faith like a romantic poet knows romance, which is well, but not intimately. I guess, I guess you could say that. And in there, the man of faith is the man of faith is is not an intellectual. He's not someone who reads philosophy books. He is a grocer, or you know, he's a, a furnace repair man. He he's the kind of he he. I mean, we have, I guess some of us have read this. He's, he he goes. He walks home dreaming about this amazing dinner that his wife has made for him, and it doesn't matter if she actually has made it for him or not. It's that kind of simplicity. It's a it's a very simple way of of interacting with the world. Um, I mean, it's also complicated, and and that that's basically what fear and trembling is about. How complicated it is. But the doing of it has to be simple or you're doing it wrong. And I'm pretty sure that is why Kierkegaard didn't want to put his name on uh, this book because he didn't consider himself a Christian in that sense. This was written by what he considered to be um, a paragonal, you know, like a the the... the the paragon of Christianity. This guy was, he, he said something, I'll find the quote later, but he said something really, uh, he said, he, he said something, he basically had really high praise for his own book. He said that it, that it, it did great things for Christianity. We're talk, I'm talking about Sickness and the Death. He said that that book was doing great things for Christianity. And therefore, he couldn't put his own name on it because he, wasn't really the author of the book in the sense that he couldn't act it. He couldn't act it out. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyone? Yeah, I think in a way you're saying something that I was trying to say a, a little bit earlier, but it's going to have my own flavor to it. And maybe this is a little of the old, older perspective. I don't know. But, it, and it's the T.S. Eliot idea as well, that we're going to get back to where we already are and we're going to be able to um, embody it in a kind of more authentic way. But where we already are, I mean, the title of the book, after all, is, is Sickness Unto Death. Um, where we already are is, is living this, this incarnate existence. And that incarnate existence is pointed towards death. But it's also not just pointed towards death. It's all the things that go along along the way. It's it's relationship, it's parenthood, it's it's the love we have for other people, it's the arc of the experience we have with those people that that ends in you know in episodes of joy, but also episodes of tragedy and being really in those things, being authentically in those things, which they're right in front of us. I mean, we don't have to go very far to, to be involved in, in those things, but being present in them such that 
we're not being in them in sickness unto death. That is to say, we're not being in them in this with this pall of of separation or pall of 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 um, of distemper because of this apparent let's say failure that the ending appears to be which of course in christian faith it is not and and that's what we have to be able to do is get back to being authentically in our real experience it's not anything other than that experience it's nothing else than that i mean it's nothing else than loving your parents and being with them in their uh, triumphs and in their difficulties that's there isn't anything else than that but you have to get to a place where you can be in it in faith uh it makes me almost think of a sort of stoicism in a way where it's uh, you're you're comfortable with or at peace with the the way things are such that the are can be all that they really are with all of the amplitude and coloration and and real depth that that is the life of the spirit to use the term as opposed to just a cloud of um of electrons yeah yeah it makes me also think of the image in, in, in fear and trembling of the the ballerina who leaps up to the infinite and then comes firmly down with his feet planted on the ground so it's this it's this this double mm-hmm. movement of up and then coming back down so you're up for nourishment and then bringing it down to earth um this this yeah this, this infinite finite incarnate duality which yeah, I wish someone would pa- unpack that some more. Paul Vanderclay, Van Der the, the marriage of heaven and earth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the pedestrian in the sublime. Ah, there you go. Mm. Mm. Sublime quote. Yeah. Yes. The, I think the, one of the important things to remember about that analogy is that the dancer has practiced so much that they don't have to think about the move they just perform the move because the other dancer in the story is the night of infinite resignation and they're thinking about the move constantly they're thinking about god and they're failing to make the move mm. they don't come down with their feet planted on the ground they're stuck with their head in the clouds that's interesting i i wouldn't have thought of kierkegaard as someone who's thinking about practice does that make i, I mean he hmm. you know I, I often think about how and josh has asked the same question is like how does kierkegaard relate to this sort of evangelical notion of relationship with um relationship with jesus and this sort of spontaneous movement of the spirit and all of the weird things that can entail um 
so I, so I don't I don't often think of Kirkazar as sort of being that much of a that that much into things like um, Christian practices or liturgy or you know formation. Um, I, I would have sort of put him in this box of much more spontaneous. So yeah, how do, how do you guys think about that? And we have three minutes left in this recording. <laughs> I agree with you. I don't see I don't see Kierkegaard doing much of that. I don't see him relating very well to the evangelicals in the sense that the the ecstasy, the ecstatic experience, I guess, mm, yeah, yeah. Isn't, isn't there at all. Um, there's definitely a personal relationship, but the the who God is for Kierkegaard is Old Testamenty to to butcher a phrase. He's he's well. The reason he talks, he goes on and on about Abraham is because I think that's who he's still thinking of God. He's thinking of God in a different sense than uh, than I think evangelicals generally are. If that makes sense. Have you guys seen the movie First Reformed? Nobody. Yeah, so. I, I think he's he's an, he's got an existentialism for me, and this may be where I come from. But he's got a kind of existential God. This 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 thing that this what was it? The something else that we talked about. I mean, that words those Suffering. words he used that he come that he comes into sickness unto death death with. He doesn't just drop the word God. He says that which produced the self or whatever it was, that which the self was dependent on. I can't remember mm-hmm. the phrase. Else. The other. But um, yeah. I was just going to say, have you, uh, there's this um, film, First Reform, which is about this um, sort of Kierkegaardian uh, pastor of this dwindling First Reform church um, who's sort of going through this uh, this crisis of despair and, you know, he's, he's uh, struggling with, um, you know, the looming climate change and the end of the world and these types of things. And <laughs> there's this one really interesting interaction where he, he's, uh, he goes, goes to this big mega church um, and has a talk with the pastor and the, the pastor of the mega church has this line where he says to the pastor, you're always in the garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> You never go out of the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's sort of, in a way, I might like that. What's the name of that? First Reformed. I think everyone here would find it interesting. Um, (laughs) But but that's sort of the Kierkegaardian um, view of God. He never goes out of the Garden of Gethsemane. I would would say the the way I look at Kierkegaard is I think he was struggling through his entire life. So if I were to write a a philosophical biography of Kierkegaard, I think he dealt with the problem of how do I not make my character an idol? And rather, how do I make my character an icon of God? What does it take? What won't it accept? Because we're faced with this existentially all the time. We can look at an icon 